Hello everyone, I'm here with Fawn Volkert. And Fawn, I have the privilege of working with her at an incredible ministry called Path to Freedom. That's Path, the number two, Freedom. So it's pathtofreedom.org. You can check us out and you can see we're going to be talking a lot more about Path to Freedom during our time together. And I'm just so thrilled to have you with us, Fawn, here at our Help and Hope uh, podcast. And it's just such a privilege and honor to work alongside of you. Fawn is the program manager at Path to Freedom, the program director. I'm sorry, right? That's the right title, program director program director at Path to Freedom, and she is actually my boss there, and she is great to work with and for. It's been one of the great privileges of my career, actually, to work alongside someone like Fawn and to learn so much from her, and she has quite a story to tell, and so I just wanted to welcome you, Fawn, and ask you to share from your heart. I want to start at the very beginning. I want to get your whole story. I'm going to interrupt you a lot with lots of questions, but I have not actually heard your whole story, so I'm looking forward to this. So welcome, Fawn. All right, thank you. Thank you for having me. So yeah, the story really begins with, I mean, I was basically born into domestic violence. My mom Mm. married my most prominent and first abuser when I was an infant. Oh my. So in that relationship, I endured physical, mental, emotional, verbal, and sexual abuse. What age does that start at? Yeah, I was yeah, I was just gonna share it before my ability to recall. So I don't Come have on. a memory of the first time. It could have been mm. as an infant. Oh my goodness. It could have been in the crib. It's just something that always was, you know? Huh. And the sexual abuse was mostly he was the contributor of that, but also his family members. So it was extensive. The physical violence was extensive watched my mom get beaten pretty bad as a kid and really one of my greatest fears was losing her uh, as a result of witnessing that and uh, yeah so you know there it's not that there weren't good moments in my childhood I had brothers and we had fun and there were moments like that it's just that trauma overshadowed those moments Yes. Even though my abuser was made to leave our home at some point in elementary school, you know, the timeline's fuzzy. That's Uh another effect of trauma. But I, I didn't feel freedom and I didn't feel the innocence of childhood. Even after he was gone, I still struggled with just fear and loneliness. So while there are these memories that seem like classic childhood memories, that fear and loneliness was always with me. So trauma was pretty quickly overshadowing sort of those normal childhood experiences, Uh really affecting the way I do relationships. And I think if you look at like adverse childhood experiences, the survey is all about relationships. There are infractions against your relationships and your Uh ability to connect. And so my experience has made it really difficult for me to build good, deep, healthy connections Mm-hmm. And you talk about adverse childhood experiences. Our listeners probably don't all know about those. I've learned about those since I started with Path to Freedom. Can you share a little bit about those and how those impact everyone, really, but especially yeah. those who are victimized as they're when they're younger? Yeah, you can look this up, too. It's often called ACEs and it's right. adverse childhood experiences. And it's a survey, really. It's a survey with a pretty small amount of questions. I want to say 10 to a dozen questions about experiences you may have had in your childhood that would increase your vulnerability to, you know, not thrive, basically. Uh-huh. So they're usually relational, physical abuse or neglect or, you know, single mom home family member in prison, questions like that. And then the higher your score, the idea is that the higher your score is, the higher your vulnerability is. Mm -hmm. Of course, those are offset by resilience factors. So there's, yeah, a second part to that survey where if you had like strong bonds with a school teacher or other families in the community. I must have missed that part of my training. Sorry about that. Oh, often it's skipped, actually. It's such a significant, important piece, but often it's skipped. So yeah, it so keep talking about that. It's a resilience training. What is that? Yeah. 
Yeah, the, that portion of the survey is going to check and see if you had other safety factors in place that are going to help build a resilience against those traumatic adverse experiences. Wow. I score very high on adverse childhood experiences. In fact, 100% of the questions oh I score. So my trauma was significant and my resilience factors are really low. So it's actually... Oh. You know, by the grace I would have thought God, that was the op. I would have thought that you had really high scores for resilience. Just knowing you for the past year and a half, yeah. I would have absolutely thought that you scored really high in resilience. Yeah, the external factors that they would be looking at, I didn't have a lot of, but internally, I just feel like God blessed me with a pretty good brain. Um, mm -hmm. and that's what I used to protect myself. And I did adopt families as a kid. And I would say that was the other key contributor is just adopting other families and seeing life look different in somebody else's home than mine. So when you were in middle school, I, I think that's where you left off with your story. What take us through high school and, and just what happened and. Okay. Yeah. So at 14, my mom got a job in another town and we moved. That's okay. kind of significant in my story because at 14, I should have been devastated to leave my friends, but I got such an excitement about leaving everybody I built connections with mm. and starting new. Um, mm. And that was just the development of my ability to build what looks like relationships with other people, but meanwhile, protect myself from really building relationships. So when we mm -hmm. moved, uh, I was 14 and I looked like a teenager, you know, had a blast, laughed with friends, whatever, made some great friends. I wasn't enduring physical abuse anymore, but I wasn't vulnerable in those relationships. I was the person that listened to all their problems. And okay. yeah, and so the connections that a lot of my old friends felt with me was not the same connection I felt with them. Mm. I was also extremely depressed and by the age of 14 started developing an eating disorder. I wow. was cutting, I had suicidal ideation. I would pray every single night that God would just let me die. Oh my goodness. I really believed I was going to hell if I killed myself and that saved me uh -huh. for a little while there. And I would just pray, just let me die. Just take me to be with you, God. I can't do this anymore. The, the loneliness and the fear of my childhood was just always present. Uh -huh. um, and I think, and I think that's important because it's not when we talk about triggers, you know, I was always feeling alone and always feeling afraid. It wasn't something that would be triggered in me. It was always there. Talk about triggers because our listeners probably don't know what, some of them probably don't know what a trigger is and, and yeah. how that all works. Yeah. So what we talk about a lot in working with victims of trauma is that they, you can trigger that trauma in them. Mm. Something you do or say or a smell or a sound or a word mm. or anything can bring back this awful childhood experience. For me, an example of that is the smell of alcohol on a man's breath because my prominent abuser was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> that will trigger sort of this memory. And uh, so real triggers kind of bring you back. It's a post-traumatic stress experience. like. Okay like we see in war victims. Right. But that term does get used pretty loosely and, and, you know, it triggers an emotion or triggers the trauma, which is what I want to clarify because that trauma, the effect of the trauma is always there. That feeling right. of fear and, and isolation is always there. Yeah. What I would say happens sometimes is the external, there's external triggers for me, an external trigger is something that validates what I already have grown to believe. It validates oh that thing that's, that's awesome, already Jordan. there. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happens is my defense mechanisms click in, click yeah. on, you know, yeah. to me, that's the best way to describe what it feels like to be triggered. It's not a flashback memory. It's more like a reminder. I have to protect okay. myself. Wow. Yeah. That's really, I, I'm just so thankful for you and for the wisdom that you share and how God has given you such a gift of articulation from your heart to be able to so clearly, I mean, that's the best definition I've heard of what a trigger is. And it really helps me in providing care for the girls 
to finally understand it better. I mean, the way that you just shared it, that's gold. And that should be just plastered up on all of our training videos. And <laughs> it needs to get out there because it's just, it was just so well put. And I think it's because you've, you've been through it and you're still living in that at, at, in some, at some level. We'll get to that a little bit later. So, so continue on. I interrupted you and asked you to define triggers, but that was, no. I'm just glad I, I did. So I love talking about things like that. So yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, the way that you said, I don't, I don't even know if I, I'm going to ask you to repeat it because you said that it, it, it validates an emotion inside. Say that again. It validates a belief that I've already grown to, or a feeling or a lie that I've already grown to believe. It validates a feeling or a lie that you've already grown to believe. And that gives me a great opportunity to just give a plug for your book that you wrote, that you wrote a few, when did you write that book? Satan lies. Goodness. Years ago, maybe hope. three. Mm -hmm. Just three years ago. Maybe three. I don't know. <laughs> Seems like an eternity ago. I should, I should know but before the it. pandemic, right? Or right around the pandemic? Yeah, it was before the pandemic. Right before the pandemic. So Satan lies, receive hope that you can buy that book on Amazon. And so, yeah, I mean, that's that really that title that it validates the lies, you know, mm -hmm. that, that trigger validates the lies. That's just awesome. Thank yeah. you for that. So continue on. Okay. So yeah, struggled with depression through middle school, high school, moved out of my mother's home, like 17, 18 years old. And what would your that... advice be for parents who are listening to this right now? I know it's a loaded question, but <laughs> just, I mean, they have a child maybe who hasn't gone through what you've gone through, but they have a child struggling with depression. There's so much mm -hmm. of that. There's so much anxiety amongst kids, even in really good families where you'll hear all the time, my daughter, my son, whoever really struggles with anxiety. And I mean, we could go on and on about this, but give us, give us just a couple of sentences or a few sentences about yeah. what you would say to a mom or a dad who asked you that question. That general yeah, this is, huge yeah, question. This, yeah, it's tough. It's always tough for me to think what could have been done differently, right? And I'm not sure actually that I had a propensity for depression and anxiety. I think mine was a response to a traumatic experience, okay. right? So or experiences. So I I have a hard time answering it because I don't want my bias to seem as though I don't have a sensitivity for people who are just wired a little differently. Than yeah. Me. Yeah. So, so I think the answer is different based on the experience, but for me, it would have been if at any given moment, somebody would have acknowledged the complexity of the trauma that I was exposed to and got me the help I needed and an immediate early intervention is critical. Mm. Hmm. Right. Because even though my abuser was made to move out of the home, the abuse remained alive inside me all oh, the time, constantly yeah. present. I was living it over and over and over again. Right. So an and, immediate yeah. early intervention, mm -hmm. getting help early. So you didn't have any of that as a teenager. No. You didn't have... hmm. I don't know if it even existed. And I do recall, you know, it was a different time and, and my mom has passed and my mom is a brilliant woman and uh -huh. we have, she had a history of abuse, right? I mean, it's just generational. So yeah. I never want to say anything that dishonors her, but I did tell her, I, I think I need therapy. And this was before yeah. we moved, before I was 14, that moment where I decided I'd figure it out on my own. Uh -huh. And she said, you just need friends. Right. <laughs> it's just, it was a different time, right? We just didn't right. do right. that. So right. and, and I don't know if it would have helped by the time I did try therapy. Mm -hmm. I didn't trust therapists. I just mm -hmm. was waiting to invalidate them. Right. <laughs> and I could do that within one visit usually. So. Right. Of course. <laughs> and so you didn't, you didn't go from, like I said at the beginning, I don't know your story. So you weren't in foster care during your teenage years? Wow. No, there was some discussion about that I had. And again, times were just so different then, right? Yes. So I had two little brothers. They were the children of my abuser. I had an older brother who had a different father. And so we would have all been separated. And back then, the favor was in the mom keeping all the kids together. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree with that. You know, working with kids who have endured the foster care system, I'm actually grateful 
despite our lack of resources that I got to stay with my brothers. Mm -hmm. How many brothers do you have? I have four. No, yeah. I have three. Sorry, I have three brothers I grew up with. I have a stepbrother that I yeah, saw. Yeah, you had a, I wrote this down. I thought this was really cool. You write the best things on Facebook, by the way. So listen to what Fawn wrote the other day, which I thought was really cool about her brothers. And I want to ask you about this. Mm -hmm. She said this, I was the only girl in my childhood home with three brothers. And I really don't think enough is said about that dynamic. Every one of my brothers has at some point felt comfortable enough to make me feel beautiful. And then she wrote, I only wanted them to think that I was cool. <laughs> the baby, which he hates me saying, went as far as sending me a screenshot of our FaceTime while we were talking so I could see for myself how beautiful I am. He has grown into such a wise man, still protective of his only sister. I left our conversation with great admiration in the sense that I'm the baby now. He vehemently protested the lies. There it is again, that theme, the lies yeah. in my mind has been allowed by me to believe I'm the luckiest older baby sister ever. And, uh, you know, many times when you come from a, a house of trauma, you know, that background, many times the brothers or sisters or siblings are unhelpful, but here it sounds like that was different for you. Yeah, we were the reason each other survived. And hmm. I was the second of my mother's children. Um, okay. I had two younger brothers, an older brother, but even my older brother has said things like, you were always my bigger sister. I filled a maternal mm -hmm. role in their life. Yeah. So as kids, they would make me Mother's Day cards. And, you know, my mom was a single hardworking mom when our mm -hmm. abuser left. So I really stepped into that role for them. Mm -hmm. And since then, <laughs> they have really stepped into manly roles in my life and really... Yeah love me and care about me. And yeah, they, they're tell you you're pretty. The way I feel. Yeah, tell you're pretty, pretty and beautiful on FaceTime, yeah. on FaceTime of all places where we usually don't look that great. Yeah. And I do feel like, you know, they were normal boys when we were kids. I mean, we got, you know, we kicked each other, pushed each other, competed. I always competed with my brothers. Best matchbox. Not you. You don't compete with like. anyone. For <laughs> That's another one of my resilience factors. So would you say that a resilience factor would be your brothers? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah. They were my will to survive, you know, yeah. and they, and really interestingly enough, and if you don't mind me kind of getting back to this timeline, yes, my brothers yeah. are what kept me in the town I lived in as long as I did, because I wanted okay. to be there to protect them. Mm -hmm. But at, I think when I moved out of the house at like 17, 18, that's when things started getting shaky because I went to a party. I was drugged and raped by peers from high school. Mm -hmm. So it kind of relaunched that bad belief system. And oh so goodness. even my brothers weren't strong enough will for me to survive at that point. Mm -hmm. I did try to take my life. I ended up in a hospital for a suicide attempt at that time. Oh my. Then, How old were you yeah, again? 18, about 18 okay. years old. Okay. Yeah. And, and something characteristic of me speaking of resilience is, you know, I was in the hospital overnight. The next day they talked about admitting me into psychiatric portion of the hospital. And I said, I have to get to work. I can't <laughs> there. And they did let me go. I refused to stay and I okay. went to work and I went on wow. business as usual. So, wow. Wow. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. And then at about 19, yeah, 19 years old, I just realized I can't, I just can't do it anymore. I finally gave in and I ran away from that hometown again, left people, broke bonds and connections. And I became a homeless substance abuser and hitchhiked across the United States. So, okay. Lived Was in that the forest. first time you took drugs or no. had you taken drugs before? <laughs> Yeah, I was like, let's hear the secrets. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is the part that everybody gets to know. I was lightly introduced to drugs in high school. I, okay. I mean, I started smoking cigarettes in elementary school. I started, you know, experimenting with marijuana and mm -hmm. drinking a lot by high school. <laughs> yeah. So after that, when I, you know, after I left high school, that's when I, I mean, you name it, I, tr I tried it. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you find yourself, if you don't mind me asking, some people say that they know that they're an addict, right? The first time they taste alcohol. Mm -hmm. 
uh, it's just amazing to me. There's there's people who say that that the first time I tasted alcohol, I knew I was addicted, mm-hmm. and it was in their blood or it was in their whatever it was. And other people, they can drink socially, they can, or even pills. Maybe it's pills or something like that. Was there ever any addiction issues for you, or was it just more along the lines of just rebellion? You know, it's or it just is numb it- the pain. Yeah, no, it was just, yeah, it was, it was rebellion and to numb the pain. I would say I didn't end up having, you know, it looks the same from the outside. Yeah. So people started treating me like an addict and later in life, I actually would go work for a drug and alcohol recovery program. And I could tell the difference between the women in the program. Like she really struggles and that one's masking something. So that's true. Then what I said that it's, there's, Mm -hmm. there's a difference in, is it body chemistry or is it, what do you think that is? I've always been very interested in that. And, and you know, what's the difference? There's people that I've talked to who are alcoholics and they'll tell you they can't ever taste, they can't even smell it, they can't yeah. taste it, or they will, they can't just drink one. You know, they've, yeah. they've got to drink 10. Um, yeah, it's excessive. Yeah, yeah, I would say it starts with a chemistry, right? But mm-hmm. they're what we call biopsychosocial impact on a person's life. You can have the chemistry and still never really struggle. Right. But if you have the chemistry plus abuse and, you know, other things, another common feedback you'll get from addicts when they're going into sobriety is that the their problem isn't with alcohol or the drugs their problem is with their mind with their wiring Mm -hmm. and the drugs and alcohol are actually a self-medication of what what they're internally struggling with sure which is similar to substance abuse right i had an internal trauma and i was numbing it with drugs and alcohol but if I wasn't being offered it, this is a big difference. Well, I wasn't being offered it. I just didn't do it. I wasn't out yeah. looking for it. I didn't have to buy it. I didn't have to right. spend my money on it. Okay. I didn't have to just, you know, it's yeah. just that I was a cute young girl and it was always being offered and I did enjoy the numbing effects. So you, you ran away after you were raped mm-hmm. and after you tried to commit suicide and you went on drugs. Mm-hmm. Pick it, pick it up there in the story. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up out in California, hitchhiked out to California and with people I had always traveled with people. Mm -hmm. And then in California, I split ways with the people that I was traveling with because that's what I had been doing since I was 14 years old. Like, okay. What year was that when you, when you went out to California? Okay. So I would say I was 21 years old. That was like 28 years ago. (laughs) Okay. So you were, you were born in what? 71, 74, 74. Oh man, I'm 72. So not far off, not far off. So you were, so 20 years ago, when was that? I can't even think right now. I can't Um, either. The early two thousands. Yeah. Well, okay. So it had to have been 19 something because 1999, I was a mom. So sometime right. before that. <laughs> I was going to say, well, it couldn't have been 20 years ago then. I'm just curious, was it yeah. in the 80s and the 90s? It was probably, 90s. In, probably in the early 90s. It was 90s. Yeah, I graduated high school 92. So somewhere between 92 and 99. That's the window. <laughs> okay, interesting. I just always like to think about like the, the, the period of time that people were talking about and what was going on in the world at that time and yeah. So yeah. So you were you were going out to California. How how far did you hitchhike? I from Michigan to California. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's. Well, you it's you like weren't by yourself I, though. You, you were with friends. I, I oh, started wow. out with friends, and then in California, Shasta National Forest, as it was, mm-hmm. I decided to part with from my friends, and I headed out to Beaver Marsh with a bunch of people I didn't know um, okay. to start over. So Beaver Marsh, Oregon. There okay. used to be a single gas station. It's just a few mm. miles long. It's between a, a national forest and a reservation. Okay. And I started working at the, I mean, I pulled into the gas station with my friends. They had a van, they, my new friends, <laughs> they had a van. We were getting gas and I ended up getting a job, <laughs> two dogs wow. and a place to live. <laughs> so. Oh my goodness. I think that people who maybe haven't gone through the kinds of things that you've gone through, the abuse, the running away, the hitchhiking, like the whole, th- <laughs> sometimes we wonder like, like 
we just like how did not how did it happen but like more details you know and mm -hmm. a lot of times i understand why people aren't willing to share those details yeah. but even when it comes to things like sexual abuse and it's just hard to wrap your brain around it like yeah. how it happens to an infant you know how it happens to yeah. a young girl and how you're still standing today like how how is it that you're doing so well i mean i know that that's it's the grace of god i know that yeah. and but I, I don't i'm not even asking a question i'm just i guess i'm just making a statement that for those of us who haven't been through what you've been through it's just incredible to see you standing and leading and you know leading organizations and being a person that i would follow and that's that takes a lot for somebody to get that from me i, I thought the same thing about my dad because when my dad when my brother died in 1993, he died in a car accident very suddenly in 1993, July 6th. It's actually going to be the 30th anniversary coming up here soon. I just remember watching him preach and thinking about him preaching now in the weeks after and just wondering how in the world, how are you even standing, let alone up there preaching? And I think the same thing about you, even as an adult, is that, you know, how is it that you're able to be the kind of person you are. Like if you were to answer that, and I guess I am asking you a question in just a few sentences, yeah. what would you attribute it to when it comes to your faith? Maybe bring it to your faith. Yeah. Yeah. I would say again, all of the, this type of trauma and, and really anything, even what your dad went through, it's all an attack against our, our human nature to connect with others and to connect mm. with God and even to connect with ourselves is something he brilliantly created. Right. Uh, and so the, the lies that I lived with kept me from those connections. And actually, Anna, you know, the founder of the organization we work for, Anna Stevenson, yes. she said once that sexual abuse and, and specifically human trafficking is Satan's greatest attack against God's children. And when I heard her mm. say that, I thought that is that exactly sums up what happened. It was a great attack against my my design, my intended design, my intended purpose. Yes. And so a couple, you know, like I lost my faith. I lost my connection with God for a long time and was atheist. And I did pull myself up by the bootstraps. I worked and I was a, the executive director of a multimillion organization in Midtown Manhattan, earned my master's degree on an express bus, had two kids, was staying married on the outside, I looked just like everybody else, maybe even right. cooler in some ways. Right. right. But that that feeling of being alone and afraid was still dominating on the inside. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really until I I went into to a church and I started letting my heart soften again and and getting vulnerable again and accepted christ that and really i mean yeah just all of that yeah the vulnerability and being able to trust and bond with other humans and to trust that what god says about me and his word is actually true yeah that i that i started to experience healing and and mm. even more specifically I, I do things with excellence. I'm an overachiever. That might be a trauma yep. <laughs> trait. I don't know. I don't know. It might yeah. not even be a good thing. But in the church, I also rapidly became somebody who was on the prayer team and wow. leading, you know, hospitality. And I was at a women's retreat and a young woman came up to me who knew my story. And she said, can you pray for me? I just, I don't want to live with the effects of childhood sexual abuse for the rest of my life. And when right. I prayed for her, and this is in my book, there was this profound moment where mm -hmm. I, uh, I thought I've never prayed for that. One of the hmm. lies I was still standing on was that I will never heal from this, that I will always be experiencing this loneliness and the shame and the, everything that comes with it. Yes. So I, I really fake prayed for her. I want to be honest about that. We've later talked about that candidly, but in that moment, I thought that's it. I cannot help other women heal. I cannot be the light in the darkness mm -hmm. or the light on the hill. If I haven't experienced the healing that God says he has for me. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I went on a hot pursuit to <laughs> figure out yeah. what that is. You know, and yeah. that that's evolved into my ultimate healing where now I feel like I can serve other women because I can serve from a place of having been healed and set free.
Mm. And you're right. There's still some of it there, right? It's like every day I'm yeah. learning something new and I'm sure. still growing and healing, but there, but I'm not coming to other people from a place of disparity. Mm-hmm. We're all going to experience trials and it's just that God uses what was meant to harm us for good. And when we walk in that justly, mm-hmm. um, it's all him, you know? Yeah, that's, that's interesting that you shared that verse yesterday or a couple of days ago in our staff meeting from Genesis 50, 20, those things that, right. that, yeah, it's great. It's, it's just an awesome verse. And it's in the context of it is that Joseph has been left by his brothers, sold into a pit or dropped into a pit, you know, left for dead years and years pass. He's thrown into prison. He finally rises to the second in command in Egypt. Uh, to Pharaoh and there's a famine and his brothers come. And I love the way that Joseph kind of toys with them a couple times and disguises mm-hmm. himself. It's just, that sounds like something you would do fun. It sounds like something I would yeah. do too. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, I, I love that he's, it says with tears, that with tears, he turns to his brothers and he says, what you meant for evil, God's mm-hmm. turned for good so that many could be saved. And I love that you shared that the other day, because then we were able to share that with the girls who Mm. that we're ministering to at path to freedom and melanie tied it together with romans 8 28 that those two verses really from the old testament and the new testament genesis 50 20 romans 8 28 for god works all things together for for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose and that is just seen so brightly in your life. I mean, you are a picture of that for anyone who's watching right now and you have gone through trauma and you're trying to work through that trauma or you have a child who's struggling with depression or with suicidal thoughts or actually attempting it. There's just so much of that out there. You're looking right now at a picture of Romans 8:28 that God is working and he's continuing to do that. He's continuing to work things for your good. And the book that Fawn has written is called Satan Lies, Receive Hope. And you can get that book at Amazon. And so I want to continue with the conversation if you're up for it. Are you up to keep continuing? Okay, good. Because I, lo- I have more questions. So, okay. all right. How did you go from, so you're on the street, you're hitchhiking, and then you go from there and you said that you became a young professional with two children and successful, but yet you were still an atheist at that point? Yeah. Okay. So how did that all happen? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When I was in Beaver Marsh, Oregon, I was sort of groomed by a truck driver out there. And that just was like one more, yeah, one more moment of (sighs) trauma on top of trauma, you know, and he picked me up and you know, was treating me great and whatever. Mm, and how old was buying he? Me clothes. I would, ha- I mean, I would have to guess at least 10 years older than me. And I was 21 at the time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I found myself in trouble. You know, we were at a hotel room. I intercepted a phone When you call say groomed, my- what do you mean by that? Yeah, I was, I was homesick. I wanted to get back home. He met me at the gas station I was working in at Beaver Marsh and kept popping in and being Mm -hmm. kind to me and told me that he had a load to take back to Michigan, knowing where I wanted to return to and that he would give me a ride all the way there. Mm. So I jumped in his truck and we slowly crawled across the West coast and he was buying me food and buying me, taking me on shopping trips and buying me clothes and he didn't try anything on me. Right. Like he was safe, but he was also giving me drugs. We were in a hotel room one night and he was passed out. I answered the phone when it rang and whoever the woman was on the other end, maybe an informed bystander, maybe somebody who knows him said, you, you are in danger and you need to mm. get away from this man. He's not going where he says he's going and you are in danger. Knowing what I know now, that very well could have been somebody getting ready to involve me in trafficking. The behaviors are very similar and... Um, mm-hmm. I, he passed out in his truck one night in an alleyway behind some greasy spoon. I jumped out of the truck and jumped behind the dumpster we were parked in front of. I didn't even want to take my chances of him seeing me run, hid behind that dumpster until he left, stayed there until it got dark. And I knew he wasn't coming back. And 
Mm. called my dad for help. So, yeah. So I think it was just one more, one more sign, right. That God wasn't for me. He was against me. I just decided there's no God, there's no God there. There's no God. How could he sit by and watch what happened to me as a kid? It doesn't make sense. I couldn't make sense of it. And, and yeah, so it was actually in New York. I already had one kid, was married, getting ready to have a second kid. I was reading Pursuit of Happiness. Hmm. Actually, mother of two already. I was sober. My first kid saved my life, I say. I was, you know, okay. had him and I decided I don't want to be the kind of parent I was raised by. I want to do better right. by him. And I did, I did better. <laughs> yes. I was reading the pursuit of happiness in New York. And I thought, what's the difference between that man and me? And I realized it's because he wasn't just surviving. He was thriving. Mm. There was a huge difference. Surviving was coming out the other side and just staying alive. Right. And and I was surviving, but I I wasn't thriving. And so I really, with that knowledge, I thought there's got to be more to this. And I started really pursuing what it meant to thrive. And it would take me a long time. Uh-huh. My youngest son was four years old and he, he was always fascinated by churches for some reason. Like whenever we drove past a church, he would say, what is that? And I would say, it's a church. And he'd say, well, can we go? <laughs> and I'd say, yeah, someday. <laughs> so we were, yeah, we were back in Florida. My oldest son was struggling with, you know, some of the things I struggled with as a kid, some depression, some anxiety, not feeling mm. like he fit in. Okay. Surely because he was being raised by an atheist woman responding to trauma, you know? Yeah. Okay. So my youngest son came out of his bedroom and said, when are we going to church? He was Aww. four. And I said, oh, yeah, wow. I said, someday. And yeah. And he <laughs> said, no, you always say someday. I asked you when, when are you four years old? Wow. Four years old. <laughs> And based on what my other son was going through, I thought, you know, where does he go when he's most afraid? Because when I was a kid, I could pray and I could Uh go to the Lord. And I had exposure through the Lutheran church as a kid. And that did, I think that was part of what kept me alive as I used to lay in the backyard of my childhood home. And I, I I just knew there was something more for me. I just knew there was a God and he had a plan for me. And I thought, wow, I raised my kids to not believe in God. And that was the only thing I had. And so fearing that where the emptiness that my teenage son might lead him the next morning, I dragged them into a church and we went, we went Wednesdays, we went Saturdays, (laughs) we went twice on Sundays. (laughs) Wow. Wow. And yeah. And my, my four-year-old accepted Christ first, first visit. Mm-hmm. was immediately wanting to serve in the cafe and he's 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 still a man of god and Aww. a faithful leader and yeah that's great so yeah so that's what did it was just that wanting to protect my kids i thought while i'm here i may as well listen to what they're saying and right and honestly chuck i i know now right the reason why i couldn't step back into a church is i was afraid i would start crying And I was afraid if I started crying, I wouldn't stop crying. And it was all to protect my heart from further pain. And that's how Mm -hmm. Satan keeps us from healing. Right. Another lie. (laughs) Another lie. And I don't even know if I answered your question. (laughs) No, you did. So you really, you would point to that as the time where you accepted Christ? Or would you say that you, Mm -hmm. it was just there since you were a child and reemerged again? Reemerged, yeah. I really, I knew mm-hmm. as a kid. I just, I had a knowing, right? I just had mm-hmm. a knowing that there was a God who loved me. Yes. I knew about Jesus. I, you know, was every other weekend I spent in a Lutheran church and was taught about Jesus, and I was baptized and did their confirmations and mm-hmm. all of that stuff. But yeah, yeah, that relationship thing was with me as a kid. And so career-wise, you went, I know that you were, before you were at Path to Freedom, mm-hmm. is there, so there, is there anything else big that happened? I mean, a lot of things big happened, but related to your trauma after your church experience, what else happened between then and, <laughs> between then and Path now, to Freedom? 
Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've just been jumping all around. I, oh, it's been I great. It's been dedicate- really clear. <laughs> yeah, I dedicated my career to nonprofit management. I just wanted there. I think I always had that desire to find that purpose for my pain, right? Mm-hmm. And I just... I was making pizzas in college and every time I made a pizza, I thought this is so unfulfilling. Like I just could not do this. <laughs> Especially you that, with you know? your focus on health and all of that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It just, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, and the more I began to heal, the more I thought, Ooh, I don't like the messaging the world is giving to people. And I need to be, I need to open up my big mouth basically. Yeah. So I earned that master's degree in nonprofit management and philanthropy. My undergrad was in human services and I just, you know, I just jumped from mission to mission. I knew, I knew young that God wanted me to work with women who were sexually abused as children. It's just, they gravitated towards me. It's like they recognized Mm -hmm. it in me and women who had never confessed that trauma to anybody would confess it to me. Um, Mm. And that started really young, really in middle school, I was at church camp and some girl came to me the day after she was victimized at camp and I helped her. So it's just been something that's followed me. But I, I started doing a development work fundraising. And so once you do fundraising, that's the only thing that anybody will let you do. (laughs) And I actually were successful in it. Yeah. Yeah. If you're good at it, then they really make you do it. Yeah. So, and that's really was just me being an overachiever. I hated every minute of that. It's just yeah. not oh, what that I would like be doing. Hard. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. But I worked at a local ministry here, St. Matthew's house, and they were a homeless shelter and a substance abuse recovery program. And they would let me, in fact, encouraged me to go work directly with the women in that program. And that's really what started my understanding of like, I don't know, the depth and the breadth of this kind of trauma and how it's affecting people and it's disrupting families and it's disrupting wellness in in every way, emotionally, mentally, physically. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Always wanted to do more with that. And I, and I wanted to work with, I wanted to work in programs and I wanted to work with women who were sexually abused as children. So I just started looking for those opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So path to freedom All during my healing. Tell us about path to freedom. Tell our listeners about what this ministry is and why it's yeah. special to you. And I'm going to interrupt you as you go though, and ask you questions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I I met with John and Anna, the Stevenson, the co-founders of Path to Freedom. I'm so bad with timelines. It's a casualty of trauma, I think, well, five yeah. years ago, maybe now. Okay. We sat in a coffee cafe. One of the board members worked with me at my previous place of employment and convinced them that they needed to meet me and talk to me. And we sat down and I fell in love with Anna right away. Yeah. I fell in love with Anna because she told me that the mission of this organization was to provide long-term support. And when she described what she envisioned, I thought, yeah, that's what I needed. <laughs> that's right. That's what I needed growing up. That's what you and need. Also, that God was. <laughs> yeah, that's what I need. Yeah. Currently. And, um, yeah, yeah. That's what I need currently and too. Long term support, yeah, long term care. <laughs> I think we all need it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not a band aid response. It's a. It's yeah. It's a constant attack of Satan's, and it constantly mm-hmm. needs to be rebuked. So yes, yeah. So the mission right away, and then Anna's boldness. If if I'm being honest, just God called her to something, and she was doing it. And God mm-hmm. was calling me to something, and I was taking really slow, calculated baby steps and overthinking yeah. everything. She just jumped in and I was attracted Mm -hmm. to that boldness of hers. So they offered me a job and I told them no. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't being released to the job yet. I was struggling with some health issues at the time. And my oldest son was graduating high school. And I realized I had given myself to ministry work, but not really, again, to the relationships with which God had entrusted me. Yeah. Like my kids and my family. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to work on that. So I think I dragged my feet for a good year and a half. I volunteered with PATH. I, I would speak when they were trying to raise money and I would just volunteer and, you know, give them my time. 
And then I was out for a run one day. I was training for a marathon (laughs) and out for a run. And my phone rang and I saw that it was Anna and I kept running, but I felt the Holy Spirit say, imagine what you could bring to this organization as an employee now. Imagine the kind of employee you could be now. I learned to like not sacrifice my own wellness and my own family to a mission, but to give out of abundance. Mm. And I feel like that's what God had revealed to me and that I was going to now be able to walk into this calling in his strength, not mine, pointing to him, not me. Yeah. So spent that time in the valley and the wilderness and decided to link arms with them. And yeah, Mm -hmm. no looking back They're providing, we're providing, as you know, long-term housing to child victims of human trafficking. And these girls Mm -hmm. have experienced horrific, complex trauma, most of of which rivals anything I've experienced even. Mm -hmm. And I want them to know that there's hope and healing on the other side of that. And there's purpose and that they're not just going to survive, that they're going to thrive. So Mm -hmm. has it been worth it? All of it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what specifically you're asking about, but I would not trade. Has it been worth it to be at path to freedom to has the minute, has the mission. I know that it has been obviously because it's worth it to me, but I'm just thinking from an outsider's perspective, do you see enough change in the girls and enough impact I think kind of that's the beauty of coming at this where I'm at in life now. It would have, I probably would have experienced a lot of despair doing this younger because I really want hope and healing for these girls so badly, but I also recognize how long it took for me to really identify with it. That theme you pointed out is still a theme I'm working through, right? So I... I would say it just depends on how you look at it. We numbers alone, it looks like we're missing the mark with some of these girls. They choose their trauma. They choose the lies. They choose the chaos that feels normal to them. And it feels like we failed, but I know that's not true because I've gotten to see the other side of it where even after kids and, and further struggles that God wins. And Mm. so I, yeah, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it for even just a moment of them being able to see that we know the Lord and, and to walk as evidence of his power. Mm. Amen. It's awesome. There's a, I'm going to close up here in a couple minutes, but uh, you write such great stuff on Facebook that I want to like, just ask you about a couple of these that are related to everything that you've said so far. Normalized chaos and dysfunction is a significant challenge for survivors of abuse. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think we are all addicted to the predominant emotion we experienced in our childhood. Wow. And so we continue to draw ourselves close to people who will recreate that experience for us. Wow. Subconsciously, right? I would never have said, oh, I love chaos. But normal stability, consistency is very boring for me still today. I still battle that. I know peace is actually healthy. Yes. Uh, and, I, and that's something that we definitely, as you know, see in our girls, that they're going to create chaos where there is none because it's what they know how to navigate. Yeah, that's, that's good. Next one, you deserve to be in environments that bring out the softness in you not the survival in you. Yeah, same thing, but maybe even a, a, a weird, deeper, current revelation of mine was that God made man and woman, and there is this feminine nature in women that gets snuffed out when there's sexual abuse. And so I've operated much of my life in a masculine energy, and it's depleting and it's tiring because I'm not designed for it. Um, And so again, back to that addiction to, I'm addicted to the recreation of that predominant emotion, which continues to push me in that masculine energy. I, I want women to know that there is, there's rest 
and being in environments that are safe enough for your femininity to surface. Awesome. And you, and you will awesome. feel it as a woman. You'll feel like, no, this is what I was designed for. I was designed to nurture and care and be passionate and love and, mm -hmm. and, and relationships and environments that allow you to do that are good. They're not bad. Mm -hmm. They're not scary. They're awesome. It's interesting when I read that, when you wrote it, I don't know, I don't remember when it was maybe a few weeks ago, I thought about, about myself and I thought, okay, if I read it again, you deserve to be in environments that bring out the softest in softness in you, not the survival in you. And I thought, okay, in my current role as the house parent at Path to Freedom, is that bringing out the softness in me or the survival in me? <laughs> and because as you well know, I mean, there is a survivalist mentality here at times. And so on the surface, I thought, all right, there's no way that this role is bringing out softness in me. But then I started to really think about it. And I thought about my interactions with the girls and even in times that, you know, were really hard. And I thought, well, that was probably some of the softest character traits that have ever flowed from me was when they needed it the most, you know, when they needed that softness the most where, you know, we don't yell and scream at them, yeah. even when it might be quote unquote, it's never deserved. But if somebody would or say, you know, well, they deserve that. Well, no, they don't with what they've been through, especially. And then the survival, not the survival in you. And I love what you've said many times. And I've used that phrase before many times in ministry. You don't want to just survive. You want to thrive. Mm -hmm. And I see the girls here thriving. The girls are thriving and, and like Anna said, providing long-term care for the girls. And we know that, that we have girls now, we have girls who call us every day, you know, and just mm -hmm. who are no longer with us, but they're out there now in the world. And we've only been here a year. I just can't imagine over the course of many years, what it's going to be like to have more and more of the residents who leave here and not only survive, but thrive. Mm -hmm. And then they, they're, they're calling us and they're still looking to us and bringing out the softness in us. <laughs> I was looking at videos the other day of some of the really old, I mean, it's only been a year, but some of the older interactions that I had with some of the girls or, you know, I saved the videos and one of them was, she, she really came at me about something. And I thought like my response to her was like a brokenhearted like response mm -hmm. and it, brings out the softness, you know, and I think that's mm -hmm. so important to be in environments that actually bring that out in you, no matter where, whether it's as a house parent at Path to Freedom or working as a manager at a bank, that, that those soft qualities about you come out with strength and power. So I just love that. This next one is, is really Can I good. add something very quickly? Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Cause you and Melanie, both you creating an environment where that softness can come out in girls who are constantly in a state of survival. And mm. we say at Path to Freedom that we want to see the lights and life come back on in their eyes. That's yes. the softness. So every girl that you've looked at and you've seen that light and life come back on, even if just for a moment, even if fleeting, that's because mm -hmm. you guys are creating an environment in which their softness can come out. And mm. you do that really well. So I didn't want to Aww. miss the opportunity to say that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we could go on and on, but when you talk about the survival and the fact that the girls are in survival mode, I've really enjoyed learning about that from a scientific perspective, that their fight or flight switch is constantly mm -hmm. on inside yes. their brain, um, mm -hmm. which is which is abnormal. I mean, that's not the way that all of us respond, yeah. but in the fact that that's always on that it's always firing, that means that they're responding at all times to even normal stimulus in that fight or flight survival mentality. And yeah. the light and light coming light and life coming back on in their eyes, I believe is turning that switch off in some ways. And it just happens, it happens slowly over time. I was just telling one of our residents today that when she first got here, and we were laughing when we were telling her and she was laughing too, we said, that her, she was caught, her fight or flight switch was just on. It was in hyperdrive all the time. And you could even see it in her face where she's, she's this and this and this and this and this, and her face is going, I mean, she wasn't acting like a crazy person, but there was just so much going on all the time that she's just, you'd think she's distracted, but she's not. She's just, her brain is firing constantly, mm -hmm. 
you know, you have to think of it as if, you know, you were being chased by a bear, you know, your fight or flight mentality. And that's what these girls are experiencing. And I told her today, I said, I'm seeing that that switch is, it's not all, it's not totally off yet, but it's getting there. And I can see there's just like a little bit here, a little bit there. It's not like it was when you first started. And, um, and you can see the softness coming out in her as a result of not being in that survival mode. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, this is a quote that's really funny. Listen up girls, (laughs) unless he's wearing a diaper, you can't change him. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Great. Reason I wanted to bring that one up because there's, there's, there's women watching this because you said, listen Mm -hmm. up girls. So there's girls listening to you right now Mm -hmm. who think they can change their man. And when you look at the scriptures, people can change, obviously. And I know that's not what you're saying. But yeah. generally, in my opinion, people don't ever change. And I know that's an overstatement. But what, what, and so the, there's hyperbole here and we're, we're being we're exaggerating it. But what do you mean by that? And how and speak directly to the woman out there who thinks that they can change their abusive man in their life. Yeah. And it's not our job to. Right. So I think I, it's like the bleeding heart syndrome or something, you know, it's that there's this wounded kid in us that we always want somebody to see and recognize and love back to health. And so it makes us vulnerable to seeing that. And that's a, it's a nice thing, right? It's a nice thing to look at somebody and see the traumatized child in them and want to nurture that child back to health, but, but it doesn't excuse current behaviors. And so I would find myself often in relationships, you know, even recent ones where, I see the lost little boy in a man and I see the trauma he endured and my heart breaks for them. And it's caused me to overlook and over empathize maybe to the risk. Yeah. Risking my own wellness because Mm -hmm. yeah, because you kind of excuse away the bad behavior and you really think, you know, the win would be that you are good enough for them to, they're going to choose you. They're going to choose you over their drinking. They're going to choose you over their bad behavior. They're going to choose you over their own childhood trauma. Yeah. And I think, you know, that we didn't get that when we were kids, right? So we're just waiting for somebody to do that now. And we're recreating that predominant emotional experience. We're picking people who simply can't. They're just simply Mm. not going to do it for you. (laughs) Right. Right. They won't, they won't change. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this has been an awesome time, Fawn. Thank you so much for Thank you. sharing your heart. I want to close with, and then if you want to add anything in closing and reacting to this, this comment that you made on Facebook, there's the status that you wrote, we can close there. And I love, I just loved this. The more you wake up to who you are, the more unbearable it becomes to be who you are not. Yeah. Yeah. And that is exactly everything we've been talking about. When you start Mm -hmm. becoming addicted to a new emotional experience, that peace that surpasses all understanding Mm. doesn't seem boring anymore, but numbing the chaos in your head is boring and seems Mm. unbearable. And Mm. yeah. Amen. Well, thank you, Fawn. Again, the book is called Satan Lies, Receive Hope. And the ministry is Path to Freedom, pathtofreedom.org. It's just a tremendous ministry. We would love to have your support on that if you want to check that out online. This has been a podcast of Help and Hope, and Help and Hope is is a ministry of Mark Inc. Ministries. So markinc.org. This is the ministry that my parents founded after my 16-year-old brother was killed in a car accident in 1993. It began as the preaching and teaching ministry of my dad and still continues to be that. But now it's just an incredible ministry that provides help and hope uh, to those who are hurting. And so if you're watching this today, you might be watching this. What I love about this broadcast and about these types of things is that somebody could be watching this like 40 or 50 years from now, you know, and they could really need our help. And they might find this like on the Internet somewhere in some corner of the Internet and I just don't know when or where you're watching this, but wherever that is, just know that there is help and hope. There is healing from trauma, even the deepest trauma, as you can see in the testimony that Fawn has provided here. We hope this helps and may God richly bless you.
Thank you for listening to this Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Visit markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org to find additional free resources on a variety of topics. Online counseling services are also available through Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling by visiting helpandhopenow.org. That's helpandhopenow.org. Download the Help and Hope app on your mobile device. Hope is just one click away.